I was living a lie in my earlier career. Because my dad would call me, all the golden handcuffs were there. The stock options, the pay, the title, the authority. I thought that's what I wanted out of work. And then why was I so miserable? What else was I looking for if it wasn't those things? And look, we all need to take care of our families. We all have dreams that uh, you know require some financial means. But I think there is, I might, might actually call it a healthy selfishness that's going on right now. This is, wait a minute, if I'm actually going to be my best self at work, I better think what it is I want from work. What do I want as an outcome from the work that I'm doing? Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. EDW fans, we are excited to share our amazing guest with you today, Rich Sheridan. To ensure you don't miss him or any of our top voices in the future work, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and to our YouTube channel. Now, Rich Sheridan is an entrepreneur, business leader, and author. He's best known as the co-founder, CEO, and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations, a software firm that has earned numerous awards and press coverage for its innovative and positive workplace culture. Rich and his message of joyful leadership have been featured in press outlets such as Inc., Forbes, Bloomberg, U.S. News, NPR, and Harvard Business Review. He's the author of Joy, Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. He's delivered 300 keynote presentations across 17 countries and was recently inducted into the Shingo Academy, which is like the Hall of Fame, for his supporting work and principles in organizational excellence. Now, I owe a huge shout out to Dalton Lee for introducing me to Rich. Um, Dalton and Rich had worked together for a long time in the past at some other organizations. And when Dalton joined us at Oppenheimer Funds, he said, I have to introduce you to Rich Sheridan and Joy and this idea of joy at work. And it was a huge hit at Oppenheimer Funds. And since then, we've worked together at a few engagements, including a recent executive development program at Invesco, where we were both speakers. And Rich, I'm not sure if you remember this, but early in the pandemic, you and I were on a one-on-one call just connecting about life in the pandemic. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this podcast around disruption in the future work. And you know, what do you think about that? And you said, now is the time. Just do it. And I'm so grateful you did. Here we are today. It's going swimmingly well. So thank you for your encouragement and all your influence in my life and my work. Welcome to the show. Well, as Morpheus said to Neo in The Matrix, Nate, I can only show you the door. You are the one who had to walk through it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love it. Rich, let's dive in. A big part of the future of work is recognizing the point when what you're doing just isn't working anymore and it's time to adapt and reinvent. And that's your origin story. So we would love if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to this moment, quitting the corporate world and launching your own business. Yeah, and and just to make sure I frame this properly, this the first transition I went through was inside the corporate world. I was very successful. 
I had everything the world measures as success. I had job, title, authority, stock options, you know, great paycheck. My, my wife was very happy with me and how I was caring for our family. My parents were very proud of me. And yet inside here, I knew that everything was wrong. Things were not going as planned. Things weren't going as I had imagined they would. And I hit a personal trough of disillusionment while I was enjoying all this worldly success. And I had all these bosses saying, you're doing well, you're doing the right things. I was still getting yelled at in meetings. I was watching poor quality go out the door. I was, I was disillusioned to the people who worked for me were disillusioned. The people I was supporting felt like I wasn't doing a good job, but they kept telling me, no, you're doing great. And I think I was. I mean, unfortunately, the standard by which we measure ourselves, I think, in industry is often way too low. And I had a higher standard in my head. And the gap was killing me. And maybe even literally, I guess, but um, I'd come home after very long days. My wife would look at tired me and she'd say, honey, did you get a lot done today? And I think through the day of the meetings, the phone calls, the, the, all the stuff going on at work, I was busy from one end of the day to the other but I was getting absolutely nothing done. And that was just working on me. And she said, you don't look happy. I said, no, I'm not. She said, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. And so that was characterizing sort of my mid-30s. And if there was an extra title on my business card, it would probably be chief optimist. I was stuck in a room full of manure. I knew there had to be a pony in this room somewhere. And I was determined to find it. And so my journey out led me to authors and books, but not books on technology, which was where I was focusing my attention. My teachers were authors of business books like Tom Peters, Peter Drucker, Peter Senge. Uh, all of these books were telling me there was, in fact, a better way of doing things. Some companies had achieved it. None of them gave you a playbook to get there. So I was just starved for figuring out what is a better way of doing things? And in 1999, after being a couple of years as a VP of R&D at a high-flying public company here in Ann Arbor, looked shiny on the outside, broken on the inside, I made some significant changes at that public company. And over two years, literally from my purchase VP of R&D, transformed that public company, that tired old public company, into something that looks like Menlo does today. And so that was my first journey out, was this moment of transition of, quite frankly, best characterized by a uh, conversation I had with one of my programmers. So I was running a, the tech part of the business. And after I'd made these big changes, David came to me, sat down. He had been with the company for 30 years. I was still the new kid on the block at 16 years in. And David looks at me and he says, I don't get it. I said, what? He says, you had no idea these changes you were about to make were going to work as well as they did. Why were you willing to take the risk? And I said, it was easy. And he was like mind blown. He's like, what do you mean it was easy? I said, David, you're looking at the wrong thing. The thing you were thinking I was risking was my job, my title, my paycheck. What I was risking was in here. I didn't know what I was going to do the rest of my days. At this point, I'm probably 35, 37 years old. And all I'm looking forward to is saying, I can't do this this way another 30 years and live. So I wasn't running towards risk. I was running towards safety. And I said, David, once you cross that bridge in your mind, change is easy. That's an amazing story. And I, I love the this 
deep recognition of on the surface, it all looks good, but inside it doesn't feel good. There is a disconnect. And I think a lot of folks listening will be able to identify with maybe being in that moment now or having been in that moment and kind of what we need to do, the discomfort of listening to that internal voice and saying, okay, all these things that I thought were supposed to validate me, they aren't working. And if I continue to allow this external validation to run my life, this internal piece of me that is so big, the pain is just going to get worse. Yeah. And I, I love that old time quote. I think it's the road, but somebody on your podcast will correct me if I've got it wrong. Um, most lead lives of quiet desperation. And I would add at work. Most lead lives of quiet desperation at work. And then the sad story is most of us go to our graves with a song still in our heart, never having been sung. Idea too, Rich, of what you're saying of external um, success measures, these things that are supposed to be great that we've all been indoctrinated in, socialized to believe. This is what should make your life great when you're courageous enough to go, no, this isn't the most important success measure at all. In fact, if I keep following these things, it's going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And even if it it doesn't kill you, kill you, if it kills your spirit, you are then a hollow person from that point forward. And I, I know one time I was advising my oldest daughter on this. She called me in because she was in a terrible work situation. She had just joined this company. They had nothing for her to do. They told her to sit in her cube until they had something for her to do. Literally just told her to sit there. And one Friday afternoon, about 3.30, she starts packing up her stuff and her boss shows up. She says, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm heading out early. I'm done with everything I need to do, which was nothing anyways, because they had no work for her at that point. And that boss looked at her and said, sit back down. You have to be here till 5.30 or whatever quit time was. She called me that weekend and I told her, quit. And she said, what do you mean quit? I said, do not show up on Monday. Turn in your resignation over the weekend by email. I said, they are killing your spirit. And if they, if, I said, if that flame goes out, it is so hard to restart. And she did. That is some good dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some fantastic parenting. And it's, it's, a good, it's a good segue into something that I think is an interesting place to go to with this is a huge focus of yours has been the lack of joy and creativity that you felt in the corporate world that you felt in that job prior to launching Menlo. Here we are, you know, Menlo uh, began in 2001. Here we are 22 years later. Where do things stand in the corporate world now? Is it better or worse? Well, it is probably safe to say that Changing human behavior is one of the hardest things to change on the planet, right? If, you know, any of us want to get in better shape, you know, anybody we talk to says, eat better and exercise more and maybe get enough sleep. And honestly, that's a pretty simple formula that thousands of books are written about, you know, this subject and how many people can actually do it. And now we think about changing the landscape of the complex adaptive system that is a corporation and and so on. I think there maybe was a little bit of a 
fees sloshing back and forth, change of tides and that sort of thing when the pandemic occurred. And you're seeing it, quite frankly, in really harsh ways right now where, you know, two simple uh, examples of professions where there should be joy, even if it's just hard work, that there's no difference between those two, teaching and healthcare. People are leaving those professions in droves. Why? What's going on? You know, and I think it's it's overregulated. It's it's over-hierarchicalized, if that's a word. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of fear. There's a tremendous amount of fear. And those are not good ingredients for culture. And so I would say people are still coming here to see us uh, like Nate did. Um, There is a lot of good going on in the world. Uh, So, you know, you can find it. There seems to be more attention on this idea of intentional culture and intentionally positive culture. And the word we use, of course, would be intentionally joyful culture. But I think like me way back in my mid 30s, there wasn't necessarily a, a blueprint how to get out of this disillusionment. You know, you wrote Joy Inc. 10 years ago, and, you know, it's coming up on the 10, 10th anniversary of this. Crazy. Thing. I know. And it's, a, it's this amazing kind of crystal ball book you wrote that talked about we should all be entitled to feel joy in the workplace. We can build a workplace that people love to come to. And I think. A lot of people couldn't even wrap their heads around someone saying this. Like, work is it? What are you talking about? But the world has radically changed since you wrote it, and it was radical then. And now we're in this world where there's a lot of disruptors going on. Do you, has your vision changed around that, or are you even more committed to the message of joining? You know, I keep trying to figure out today, Nate, whether. We are just being quaint here at Menlo now, or whether we are a harbinger of the future. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, what I will say is, you know, one of the biggest issues confronting top leaders today is this idea of return to the office. Boy, it's amazing. Every CEO I talk to, no matter whether they're the top CEO in a healthcare system, in an energy company, a startup company, and they're like, how are you doing getting people back into the office? And I said, well, we're probably about 90% every day and um, probably 30% come in all five days a week and the rest are four. And about 10% of our workforce is remote. And they're just like, really? Like we're struggling to get people back in the office three days a week. And I think the reason there's a disconnect between us and our quaint ways of saying it's important to be together and the rest of the world is just simply that management has no good reason to have people come back into the office. I mean, if you're coming back into the office to hop on a Zoom call all day, why? If there isn't that sense of collaboration and communication and, and camaraderie and, and human energy in the place, to come in and put on headphones and sit in a cubicle or an office all day and then be tortured by the commute, that doesn't make any sense. So you have to think through all of the cultural ramifications of why you're doing anything. And I think that's the part where leadership, whether hierarchical managerial leadership, or frontline leadership, which can occur anywhere within an organization and doesn't require a title or, a, or an office or a promotion, they have to wrap their heads around 
why are we doing anything that we do? What is its purpose? How does that purpose align with the purpose of the organization, with who we serve, and what would delight look like for them? And until we can draw those lines tightly and clearly for ourselves as leaders and for the rest of the team, it's just me telling you, you got to do this because I told you so. Humans don't do that well. I want to pivot and talk a little bit about joy. We imagine that there are people that claim that joy is not a measurable or tangible metric to you, Rich, and that by focusing too much on joy can lead to a lack of discipline or accountability in the workplace. What do you say to those folks? Yeah, number one, I differentiate between joy and happiness. I think they're both important, but I don't think anybody who does something greatly worthwhile, no matter what it is in the world, whether it's teaching young kids, taking care of patients, walking in an ER, or building complex uh, software systems like we do, could ever be happy every minute of every day without medication. Joy is an arc of work done well together over a long period of time. Joy is delivering something, experience, an outcome, a result that is a sense of deep satisfaction. So I, uh, often one of the examples I use I have not done myself, although I aspire still at my old age to do this, is to run a marathon or at least a half marathon. If I actually accomplish that someday, I'm pretty sure I will not be happy when I cross that finish line, but I'll probably be joyful. Um, (laughs) So well said. Love that. (laughs) I believe three things about human beings and the way we're built. We are wired to work hard. We are built to work. We just are, you know, every element of our fiber is built to work. And, you know, in the early days, it was chopping down trees to get ready for winter or something like that. And now it's more, for a lot of us, it's more cerebral work, but we are wired to work. We are wired to work together. We are community beings, right? We are social beings. So we are wired to work together. And the third thing is we're wired to work on things that are bigger than our individual selves. And so if we can bring those three things together in our workplaces, we will get to results. And that's the important part of this is the results are what produce the joy for us. When we hear clients call us or the end users of the software that we've built say, oh my God, I, I love the software you built. Nobody says that about software ever. Yeah. <laughs> we get it all the time. And, you know, and, and we've had people say, oh, gosh, no one's ever listened to us before. And the point was, we didn't listen. We observed. We actually honored them as human beings and built their knowledge into the software we delivered. It's hard work. We have to fight every single day. We have to fight with people paying us to do the work, to fight amongst ourselves, to make sure the best ideas are coming out. Now, if you were going to ask me about how would I measure joy on a daily basis here at Menlo? I would talk about laughs per hour, literally overhearing people laughing. Mm. Because I don't think you can actually get to laughter if you're afraid, if you're threatened, if you're under the gun. I think laughter is evidence of some amount of creative freedom in our place. And a sense of spirit of of community uh, amongst our team members. That's wonderful. I I, I want to go a little further with this 
with this theme. And I think a lot of folks listening might feel that what you're talking about sounds amazing, but perhaps out of reach for them. And that my conjecture is that as a society, as a country, as a workforce, in terms of our mental health, we're in a moment where there's a deficit of joy. And I don't know anyone, to make this personal, in my immediate friend or colleague circle that is saying, it's all good for me right now. Everything's going well. It's been really unique in my own personal journey to see so many of the people that I care about all facing struggles at the same time. And I'm just curious to get your sense, what do you make of all this in terms of where we are and how might we bring more laughter (laughs) to bear? Well, you know, I think a a great uh, leadership uh, axiom is, for God's sakes, let's not let a good crisis go to waste, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, You know, that uh, now is the time if we've got the Surgeon General of the United States telling us that loneliness and isolation is creating a mental health crisis, we have an opportunity to rethink a whole bunch of things. Yeah. I think there is such an inherent understanding inside of us of what we actually want in our work lives. And there's such a gap and it's widening, not closing. And that gap is creating an anxiety that is just hard to bear. And I think, and I think this is what's actually going on here. And I experienced it to a degree myself. When we all went home for that year of 2020 or however long it was, I know it was at least a year, I was conducting my business out of my deck in my backyard. I have a lovely garden back there and a nice little water feature and flowers that bloom in the spring and through the summer. And I remember thinking, this is pretty good. I like this. This feels very calming. But I think a lot of us, even me, was probably denying some of the things that we should have been working on back at the office and we weren't. And now all of a sudden that bill is coming due. And I think one of the things that I saw happening, including our culture here at Menlo, was the way I described it was, it was like there was this little tax that was happening every day on us, that there was a tax bill building. I called it the pandemic tax on our culture. Mm. And that kept growing and growing and growing. And I thought to myself, that's going to come due one day. We're going to have to actually pay for that. And when we tried to get people to come back into the office, it started to happen. It wasn't easy for us either. It wasn't like I just snapped my fingers and we're like, oh, yeah, we can come back. And they were all like, no, I got really used to this. I feel personally more productive. And my co-founder and I had to get a little uh, tough with him and said, look, it's, Menlo's never been about individual productivity. It's been about teamwork and collaboration. It's about help arriving before it's even asked for because your peers see you need help and they just come over and help you in this wide open and collaborative environment that wasn't happening in the zoom calls. And so in the real rubber hitting the road nowadays, I think for a lot of companies is how do you onboard new people? How do you get them to join your culture? And so all of these things are rolling around in this thing you're talking about, Alex, of this crisis that's been building for a while, this tax bill, as I would describe it. And now it's coming due. 
And I think people are really having to reassess for themselves individually. What is it I want out of the company I work for? What kind of things had I hoped for in my career? And, you know, and I think back, I had that crisis when I was probably 33, 34, 35 years old. So from your perspective, a lot of this is, is kind of this existential malaise, this sense of who am I now and where do I want to go and who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? What does fulfillment look like? And I don't feel fulfilled. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I think a lot of us learned, and, and this I did, so I'll just point to myself. I was living a lie in my earlier career. As my dad would call them, all the golden handcuffs were there, right? The stock options, the pay, the title, the authority. I thought that's what I wanted out of work. And then why was I so miserable? What was it? What else was I looking for if it wasn't those things? And look, we all need to take care of our families. We all have dreams that, uh, you know, require some financial uh, means. And, and we want to, you know, we want to raise good kids and good schools and good communities. We want all of those things. But I think there is, I, I might, all, might actually call it a healthy selfishness that's going on right now. This is, wait a minute. If I'm actually going to be my best self at work, I better think what it is I want from work. What do I want as an outcome from the work that I'm doing? And again, I'll go back to that, uh, that those three elements I believe about humans. Not about working less, not about working easier. You know, it may be for some, but I think it's about working hard, working together and, and accomplishing big things. Let's take this to the uh, leadership side of it, Rich. So we've talked a lot about people and what they're going through and needs being to be met. And there's a lot of disruption. Alex and I agree with you. This is the best opportunity in history to reinvent the way we work, to make it better for everyone. Now is the time. There's a leadership side of that, which is this, recently it's been called the human-centered leadership movement, which is this idea that we need to pay a lot more attention to what our people are going through because they're going through more change than ever. But that's not new. If you go back to your books of Joy Inc., and Chief Joy Officer, you were talking about humility, vulnerability, being loving, optimism, servant leadership. You were saying the whole time, we've got to have an increased focus on the way that we're building this culture, this sense of belonging, this community, this inclusion, so that people feel like they're safe, they belong, they have a future here, and they're doing work, like you're saying, on something that's bigger than them. So not all of leaders have bought into this. They're not all headed that direction. And so there are some people this comes kind of naturally to, but we think there are some other people who find this very foreign. And our question to you is, how do people start to shift over that direction? Hey, this is a different mindset that's needed now. How do you get there? Well, you know, for me, uh, there was a sort of a uh, watershed moment that was delivered by my then eight-year-old daughter, Sarah. Back in 1997, I had been a VP for a couple of years at that. Or no, I was just, I just got the VP mantle. So I literally a newly stamped VP. I got the bigger office. I got the title. Um, and I was probably inside somewhat scared to death because I was going to be a VP at a troubled public company. And uh, I took my daughter, Sarah, into work. It was one of those take your child to work days. And uh, she sat at my task table supposedly going to be inspired to work life for her own based on watching her dad work. 
And, you know, all I could think of was, can you imagine a more boring day for an eight-year-old than to watch a VP work all day? I mean, what on earth is she going to see? What's she going to be inspired by? So she brought her coloring books, crayons, and stickers, uh, you know, wisely, and sat at my task table all day, seemingly ignoring what was going on. No, she wasn't. She saw it perfectly clearly. I asked her at the end of the day, I said, what do you think? What'd you see? Because I knew her teacher would ask her the next day anyways. And uh, she said, what I saw, Dad, is you're really important here. What? What do you mean? She said, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) He was very proud of me. I was instantly mortified because I realized I'd built a hero-based organization and I was the number one. And the only way to scale hero-based organizations, scale the heroes, and the only way to do that is overtime. My life had been filled with overtime to that point at every stage of my career. And I'm looking across the table as I say, you're all thinking, I don't want to miss the best parts of being a dad. Mm -hmm. And so maybe my key message to your listeners, wherever they are, is the change has to happen here first. I had to become a different kind of leader. I had to learn to let go of things. I had to learn to trust these very smart people that I had hired. Uh, and I remember six months from that day, one of my guys was walking down a corridor. Remember, it was Dave. And Dave waved his hand at me. He said, hey, Rich, by the way, just want to let you know we had a little crisis this morning. If you want to hear about it, uh, come talk to me. But it's all taken care of. And in that moment, I'm like, what? I, I wasn't involved. You didn't have to ask me. And I realized, boom, congratulations. You'd gotten there. A new day had dawned at Interface Systems. I was no longer central. And I would suggest to the top leaders in an organization, figuring out how to create leadership everywhere, not just in hierarchical positions, not just based on boxes on org charts, is probably one way you're going to lift the energy of your team. I love that so much. Listen, reinvention and adaptation are not easy. They're part and parcel to what we must all do as, as AI and advanced technologies are redefining our roles. You talked about how hard that is as, uh, at the outset of our conversation, how tough it is for all of us to change. One of the big inhibitors to change is, is fear. And you've written a lot about this. So you wrote in your book, uh, and we love this quote, freedom from fear requires feeling safe. If you feel safe, you run experiments. Stop asking permission. You avoid long mind-numbing meetings. You create a new kind of culture which you accept that mistakes are inevitable. You learn that small, fast mistakes are preferable. Can you talk to us more about this and how do we create freedom from fear at both an individual and cultural level? Yeah, I think if I ever got a chance to, somebody said, write, write the opposite book of Joy Inc., what would it be called? It would be called Fear Inc., There must be classes in business schools that teach us how to lead with manufactured fear, right? I mean, just so prevalent. It must be be taught somewhere. I I don't know where. Maybe it's a secret class in the basement of every business school that teaches, okay, here's the real (laughs) secret. Uh, Lead your people with fear. You know, make them afraid all the time. Well, here's the trouble, especially in the days we're in now. Because we're all worried, you know, is AI going to replace us? Is machine learning, robotics, are all the jobs going to go away? I still think, I still believe, I always have, even in the onslaught of what we're seeing today, there are four fundamental characteristics 
that we have to rely on as humans that cannot ever be replicated by computing. Creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. Guess what? They come from the part of our brains that literally shuts down when we are afraid. And so if we're leading with fear, which most organizations do still to this day, we are literally robbing our corporations, not just our individuals, but the entire company, robbing it of the most wonderful human qualities that are going to allow us to compete. So we could talk to shareholder meetings. We could talk to board meetings and major corporations and say, guys, this is your most valuable asset inside your organization, creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. What are you doing to preserve it? You've got to pump fear out of the room. You show me an organization that's leading with fear, and I'll show you one that's having lots of mind-numbing meetings because we're all afraid to take action. If somebody comes up with a new idea, it gets on the agenda, maybe, and then we're going to take a meeting later to write a policy to, you know, to form a committee to write the policy to create it. And, And it's like, you know, if you want to suck the human energy out of your organization, it's a simple three-step process. Number one, have lots of meetings. Number two, do not, under any circumstances, make any decisions in those meetings. And number three, <laughs> if perchance, by mistake, you happen to make a decision, that's okay. Just don't act on it. And you will literally pull all the human energy out of your organization. And, of course, you don't want to do that. So what I encourage people to do when they think about what would joy look like in our organization Imagine one day you notice that people are taking action versus taking a meeting. They're willing to try stuff. If we simply acknowledge our humanity and acknowledging it, I would say is that element you described you know, from the book is we're going to make mistakes. We just are. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. We have a fundamental choice. We can make small mistakes quickly, or we can make really, really big, expensive mistakes slowly. Uh, sorry, my, my risk mitigation engine says I'm going to be in much better shape if I make small mistakes quickly because I can correct them before they kill us. That's the perfect way to describe that, Rich. And when we use those ideas and you're thinking this Menlo way in organizations that I've been at is... It's a huge unlock for the people. Hey, we want you to experiment first. Just that concept of, hey, we want you to go experiment first and then let's talk about it instead of let's create a meeting to talk about whether it's even okay to, to do anything and run an experiment. And then the, the moment where the person or the team goes, really? Like I can do this? Yes, you can. And like you said, human energy <laughs> unleashed. And then the, the amount of insight that is instantly available to have a really good meeting. When you, they come back and they go, I ran the experiment and I learned three things. And I can tell you right now, this one isn't going to work, but these two are, and I can't wait to do it. And it, it's just fundamentally flipping the entire way you think about how to unlock the potential of people, how to create energy in the organization and get better results. And as you said, even through the mistakes, even through that it didn't work, is all this powerful learning that has just turned on this energy machine. So thank you for providing that insight to us. And I would just add, because I was, I was really taken with what you said and I was ruminating on it, and it's giving people permission to make mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, we feel so much shame as individuals too. You know, what road should I take? Or I, I did this. And 
God, you know, I was just supposed to be perfect at it. I mean, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Starts in the, about first grade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my, my, my son's in second grade, and I'm constantly pushing him to try new things. And it's so, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, he's about to be eight years old, and there are moments where he just doesn't want to try something new because he's afraid that he's not going to be good at it. And it's just like, you are way too young to be thinking that way. <laughs> and, and I think we're always too young to be thinking that way. We've always had to learn new things, but it feels like our rate of learning is uh, going faster and faster. And if we can just accept the fact that we are learning engines from birth to death, I think that we embrace that simple fact that we will be much better off in our mental health. Rich, shifting directions, you make bold statements that call us to a higher standard. You invite us to rise to ideas that can be scary and foreign to us. Here are three examples. You created the mission of Menlo to end human suffering in the workplace as it relates to technology. First, the thought of that is fantastic. But second, the idea that you connected bad software that we all experience to human suffering and that you want to end that. The second, everyone deserves to experience joy at work. And the third, super bold, great leaders should elevate humanity and eliminate fear. Now, I've been around you for many years. I've been in rooms where you're giving keynotes and I've watched people say, ha, huh, yeah, right. That's not how the world works. You know, they scoff and they think this guy, he's idealistic. He doesn't get it, whatever. How do you handle that pushback? And how do you turn those people who can't see that vision you're painting for us into believers? You know, typically you have to meet them where they are and find out, you know, what, what problems are they trying to solve in their lives? You know, I think any leader who's trying to encourage someone else, and when I'm in those situations, Nate, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be the inspirer. I'm trying to lead behind an effect that when, you know, I, I love the fact that people enjoy my talks, but I don't want it to just be an hour. I want this to go on, you know, for years later. And it does. And it's, it's delightful. And that's my intention when I give this. But, but ultimately, I find the best way to do this possible is through storytelling. And so I look for maybe my brain's just uh, the, the metaphor analogy engine. I, I think that's what all of our brains are, quite frankly, because, you know, ultimately we humans are pattern matchers. You know, we look for themes, we look for patterns, we, we figure out where can we apply those patterns. And so what I try and do is find examples out in the world that are relatable to people. So they don't look and say, well, something about Menlo was just unique. And there was just something about Rich Sheridan that nobody can duplicate. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I think there's all kinds of examples in the world. Let me share some with you. One of my favorite stories was from Mass Mutual Corporation. You know, that was back where I met Dalton. And um, they ran experiments after I left. They brought me back to show me what they had done. Amy Ferrero, their VP of Claims said, Rich, let me show you the, the claims department that I'm running. She said, there's helium balloons everywhere. I said, really? What, what are you guys celebrating? She goes, oh, no. I don't know if you can hear the laughter, but there's a lot of laughter going on behind me here. Um, but uh, I, I think Andrew is our chief laughter officer, by the way. I, I'll have to tell him that. He'll appreciate that. But 
Amy took me back, shows me all these balloons. I said, oh, what are you celebrating? She goes, no, everywhere there's a balloon taped to a desk is somebody running an experiment. And the balloon is there to say, I'm running an experiment. Come talk to me about it. So cool. Awesome. Fantastic idea. I never said anything about balloons. But now it gives everybody who's running an experiment an ability to declare I'm participating. And let me tell you, when we turned the corner on the claims department, which was this 100,000 square foot facility of graphite cubes, there were balloons as far as the eye could see. Imagine that visual, the impact this has, not just to the claims department, but to anybody in Mass Mutual Corporation that visits the claims department. This is, wait a minute, this is claims processing. They're running experiments in claims processing? What on earth could those experiments be? Well, I love that story and and related back to your question is to give hope to people. Because you can look at Menlo or you can look at me and say, ah, one in a million shot, one in a million chance, needle in a haystack. When I say no, let me tell you what happened at a 180-year-old life insurance company in a claims department. I'm now putting people's brains in a spot where they're like, oh, crap. You mean we could actually do this? <laughs> and that's an interesting place to leave people's brains when they realize, oh, it's not just the little tech firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, and it's not just Rich Sheridan who writes about joy. It's a 180-year-old life insurance company in Massachusetts that can do this too. Oh, maybe we can do it. Rich, we, um, we're going to take you into a speed round. And we're going to ask you to answer these questions in 30 seconds or less. Go with your gut. And Alex is going to kick us off. Okay. So Menlo has 25,000 people visit your office from all over the world. They come to see and experience the Menlo way. What is the magic that attracts them? And what do they hope to learn? I think people are coming to find out what it takes to build an intentionally joyful culture. And it is very unusual for a company to open its doors and say, come look. And they're just, they want to come see it. Rich, you mentioned your third book, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, that it will be on entrepreneurship. Why entrepreneurship? And what is going to be your unique angle? You know, I think we are wired to be entrepreneurs. And somewhere along the way, much like your second grader (laughs) is struggling, uh, Alex, We have it drummed out of us, right? And I think this idea of kind of an open vista that, you know, what I love about entrepreneurship, particularly the style I practice, which is no outside funding. So a lot of freedom to operate. It's just my co-founder and I and no no debt. So no banks coming in our doors saying, you got to do it like this. I don't actually think is entrepreneurship. It's something else, but it's not entrepreneurship. It means that we can be our most human selves. And I think that's what the world's looking for these days more than anything. Staying with entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is still skewed more toward men than women. A recent stat shows 41.5% of all entrepreneurs are women, 58.5% are men. What are two key things we could do to get more women into entrepreneurship? You know, I was once asked how we have so many women working at Menlo. And I said uh, to my team at a daily standup, I said, you know, somebody's asking me this question because they don't have a lot of women working where they are. And I said, the reason I think we have women working at Menlo is because we have women working at Menlo. 
mm-hmm. all the women kind of like, yep, that's true. You know, we look, there's a, there's a norm in our heads are like, are there people like me participating in this thing, whether it's a company or whatnot. So I would uh, say that um, we need to learn to celebrate the women who are in. We need to learn to connect those with one another. And we need to tell the stories of women entrepreneurs so that our daughters, our young children, the, the girls are hearing these inspirational stories over and over again. So they're concluding in their heads that it would be okay for me to do this too. Rich, generative AI is all the rage and we've entered the AI era. Is Menlo on the AI train too? We are not. Ooh. Look, I, I've been, you know, is it interesting? Of course it's interesting. Is there something big going on? Yeah, I think there's something big going on. But uh, I literally am just now crossing the 50-year boundary in the computing realm. And I've watched how many trends over time have been, oh, my God, this is going to change everything. And there are those moments, right? The, the personal computer, a lot of people think personal computing was the big deal. It was actually Excel or its precursor, Lotus 1, 2, 3, and VisiCalc and all those others. It was the spreadsheet that drove the personal computer revolution because for the first time ever, we didn't have to line up at the altar of the mainframe. We could do work ourselves. And I think that's what we're seeing with AI right now. This is, this is a hugely valuable tool that will move some work forward. But if we believe we can just turn off our brains and turn it over to the computer, sorry. I don't believe it. (laughs) Very interesting. Rich, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your own story of personal transformation as a model that the rest of us can follow. We appreciate your headstrong optimism, your belief in joy, and our ability to be better at work and as human beings. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you today. Yeah, you guys were wonderful to speak with. This was a pure joy to be with the two of you. Thank you, Rich. Hey, if people want to find you out there, what are the best places to connect with you and your work? Yeah, LinkedIn. I'm really active on LinkedIn. They can come visit. Just go to our website. You can do virtual tours. You can come here and physically visit as you have done, Nate. And uh, we'd love to see you here. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.